Chapter Fifteen of Four Fifty Miles to Freedom by Maurice Andrew Brackenreed Johnston and Kenneth Darlaston Yearsley. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Fifteen Freedom. We reckoned by this time we were some three miles from the creek, so we could hope that the roar of the engine would be inaudible to those on shore. On the other hand, sunrise on the twelfth of September was a little before six a.m so that dawn should have found us still within view from the land. A kindly mist, however, came down, and hid us till we were well out to sea. As soon as it was light enough, we tried to declutch in order to transfer our kit from the dinghy to the tug, but the clutch was in bad order, and would not come out. The alternative was to haul up the dinghy level with the tug, with the motor still running, and then to transfer all our goods and chattels on to the deck. It was a difficult task, but it was done. Then we turned the dinghy adrift. This meant the gain of an additional two knots. It now seemed as if our troubles really were nearing their end. The engine was running splendidly, the main tank was full to the brim, there was enough and to spare of lubricating oil, and in a barrel lashed to the deck in the stern was found some more paraffin. A beaker contained sufficient water to give us each a mugful. It was brackish, but nectar compared to the well-water which we had been drinking for the last fortnight. We also allowed ourselves some chapatis and a handful of raisins. Our principal fear now was of being chased by one of the seaplanes, which we thought to be stationed at Messina, not many miles away. We had seen one on two occasions during our stay in the ravine. Time went on, however, and nothing appeared. Instead of looking behind us for a seaplane, we began to look ahead hoping to come across one of our own patrol-boats. It says much for the deserted condition of those waters, that during our fortnight on the coast and our voyage of about a hundred and twenty miles to Cyprus, not a single boat was seen save for those five that we had seen in the creek. Discussing the matter of the discovery of the loss of the motor-boat and the subsequent action of the crew, we came to the cheerful conclusion that probably the loss would not be divulged to the authorities for a considerable period. The rightful crew would know what to expect as a punishment for their carelessness, and would either perjure themselves by swearing that the boats had sunk at their moorings, or, thinking discretion even better than perjury, disappear into the desert hinterland through which we had marched. Should these two guesses be wrong, there was yet another course which we thought possible, though not so probable, for the crew to take. Thinking that the motor-boat and dinghy had drifted away, they would not mention their disappearance till a thorough search had been made of all bays and creeks within a few miles of the locality. The cherry of this delightful cocktail of fancy was very palatable. Whatever else happened, the occupants of the lighter, agitated to the extreme and dinghyless, would have to swim ashore, and this thought amused us greatly. Footnote. The following is an extract from a letter received from Lieutenant Colonel Keeling, since we wrote the above. At Adana I met the Turkish Miralai, Brigadier-General, Behedin Bey, who was in command on the coast. He was fully expecting the party, i.e. our party, and put all the blame on the men in the boat, i.e. the lighter, to which the motor-boat was tied. These men were all Turks, the Germans being on shore. The loss of the motor-boat was discovered before dawn, and at dawn a hydroplane was sent out to look for her, but she only spotted a small boat a few miles out, presumably the boat with which they had towed the motor-boat to a safe distance before starting the engine. Behedin Bay drew me a plan showing exactly how everything had happened. 
End of footnote. Now for a few words about the motorboat. She was named the Hertha, and boasted both a Turkish and a German flag. In addition to her name, she had the Turkish symbol for two, painted large on either side of her bows. Broad in the beam for her thirty-eight feet of length, she was decked in, and down below harboured a fifty-horsepower motor. In the bows of the engine-room we found a couple of Mauser rifles dated 1915, with a few rounds of small-arm ammunition. Some of the latter had the nickel nose filed off to make them mushroom on impact. We also discovered a various pistol, with a box of cartridges, trays of spanners and spare parts for the motor, and two life-belts, taken from English ships whose names we have forgotten. On deck, immediately abaft the engine-room hatchway, was the steering-wheel, while further astern was the barrel, containing the extra paraffin, a can of lubricating oil, and various empty canisters. Till noon the sea was sufficiently rough to be breaking continually over the bows, and three of the party were feeling the effect of the roll. To the rest, to be thus rocked in the cradle of the deep, born ever nearer to freedom, was a sensation never to be forgotten. The motor was going splendidly, and we all took turns at the wheel, steering by the sun-compass, and with the exception of Cochrane, very badly. By 1.30pm we could recognise the dim outline of the high mountain range of Cyprus. On the strength of this we each ate another two chapatis and a handful of raisins, finishing our meal with a quarter of a mugful of water. But we were a trifle premature in our lavishness. Our troubles were not at an end. For half an hour later the engine began to fail, and while Cochrane was below looking for the cause of the trouble, she petered out. The fault was subsequently traced to the overheating of one of the main shaft bearings. The oil-feed pipe to which had been previously broken, and had vibrated from its place. Having satisfied himself that no serious damage was done, Cochrane decided to wait half an hour for the bearing to cool. During this time Old Man and Looney had mid-sea bathed to refresh themselves, while Purse and Johnny tried to boil some water for tea. The fire was made on an iron sheet, on which some bites of chain were shaped into a cooking place for the big Dixie. The roll of the boat, however, though very much less than in the morning, proved too great to allow the Dixie to remain steady on the chain, so the idea of tea had to be abandoned. We now had leisure to observe the sea, and we decided that its colour was the most wonderful we had ever seen, a clear purple-blue. When the bearing had cooled, we tried to start the engine again. One pair followed another on the starting handle, but all to no purpose. All four sparking plugs were examined, the feed-pipe, separator, and carburetor were taken down. Except for a little water in the separator, all seemed correct. We refilled the tank with paraffin from the barrel on deck, but our renewed attempts still met with no success. Our efforts to turn the crank became more and more feeble, until by 4.30pm we lay down on deck utterly exhausted. Just before sunset we decided we would make a final attempt to start up. Should that be unsuccessful, we would set the sails. But to our great relief she fired at the second attempt. Our joy was somewhat tempered by her refusing to run for more than a few minutes at a time. It was found that this was caused by the feed-pipe from the tank repeatedly choking, owing, no doubt, to grit in the oil obtained from the barrel, which, as we had noticed when pouring it in, was very dirty. After dark, Cochrane did all the steering, while down in the engine-room were Looney as mechanic and old man and Johnny as starters. 
Meantime, Perce sat on deck with his feet through the hatchway against the clutch lever below him. By jamming this hard down and tapping the clutch with a hammer, it was possible to persuade the cones to separate when required. For over four hours we spent our time starting and stopping. Our best two runs lasted for thirty and thirty-five minutes. Usually a run lasted for five or less. We took it in turns to tap the feed-pipe with a piece of wood, in the hope of keeping it from clogging, but it was of little use. Each time the engine stopped, Looney took down the separator and feed-pipe and blew through them, getting a mouthful of paraffin for his pains. When all was ready again, the two starters, though almost dead beat, managed somehow to turn the crank. By ten p.m. we were becoming desperate. It was only Cochrane's cheering news that we were within two hours' run of the coast that kept the engine-room staff going. A run of five minutes meant a mile nearer home, so we carried on. An hour later Cochrane told us all to sit on the starboard side, for it was on this side that the feed-pipe left the tank. This was sheer genius on his part. From that very moment the wilful engine behaved itself, and ran obediently till we meant her to stop. As we neared the coast, at a distance perhaps of three miles from it, Nobby fired off a varies light, in case there were any patrol-boats in the neighbourhood, but no answering light appeared. Next day, in Cyprus, we asked the police if they had seen the light. They had not seen it, they said, but they had heard it. This proves how wonderfully sound travels over water, for we would not for one second doubt a policeman's story, but as is hardly necessary to point out, a various signal, like little children, should be seen and not heard. Having had only our memories of the bearing and distance to Cyprus from Rendezvous X to guide us, we had worked out in the ravine that the bearing on which we had to steer would be south, fifty degrees west. On sighting the island in the afternoon, we had found that this was too much to the west, so Cochrane had altered the course to make for the western end of the high range of mountains visible about due south of us. When about two miles from the shore, we turned eastwards and moved parallel to the coast, on the lookout for a good anchorage, if possible near a village. Finally, about a hundred yards from the shore, we dropped anchor in a wide bay. On leaving Yusgard, each of the party had possessed a watch, but by this time only two were in working order, and these were old man's and Johnny's. As the chain rattled over the side, the latter looked at the time to find that the hand once more pointed to the witching hour of midnight. This timepiece served its purpose well, for it was not till an hour later, when it had ceased to be so essential, that it shared the fate of most of its comrades, and was broken. It was interesting to find later, on comparing the old man's watch with Cyprus time, that there was only two minutes difference between them. We had checked our time occasionally, by noticing when one of the pointers of the great bear was vertically beneath the pole star. The solar time, when this occurred, on any night had been worked out before we left Yusgard. Fairly accurate timekeeping was of importance, for on this depended the successful use of both the sun-compass and the star-charts. And so we had reached Cyprus, but we were all in too dazed a condition to realise for a moment what it meant. In fact, it took many days to do so. On arrival in the bay, Cochrane, with his keen sense of smell, had declared that there were cows not far off, and at about three o'clock we heard a cock crow. We said we would eat our hats, or words to that effect, if we did not have that bird for breakfast. There was not a single light on shore, and we had no idea whereabouts in Cyprus we had dropped anchor. As the stars disappeared in the coming light of dawn, 
we saw the coast more clearly. Then by degrees, what we thought were ruins on the coast, rocks a couple of hundred yards east of us took form. Later these proved to be the still-occupied Greek monastery of Acropidae. Then a house or two nearby stood distinct, then trees, and finally our eyes beheld, not a mile away, a large village, boasting churches, mosques, and fine buildings set in trees, and beyond a mountain range rising sheer from the very houses. With the first light came a man to the beach opposite us. We shouted to him in English, French, and Turkish, but he appeared not to understand. Soon he was joined by two or three others. Then they started arriving in tens and twenties, men, women, and children. Mounted gendarmes galloped down. We shouted ourselves hoarse, but to no purpose. We tried several times to start up the motor, but we could not turn the handle. Finally Cochrane jumped overboard in a shirt borrowed for the occasion, as it was longer and less torn than his own. He must have felt still rather undressed for the ordeal, as when he reached the water he shouted for his hat, which was thrown to him. Clothed thus he swam towards the shore. In two feet of water his courage gave way, and his modesty made him sit down. So situated he harangued the crowd. Finally there appeared a gendarme who understood English. He said there was an English police officer in the village, which was named Lapethos. So, borrowing a pencil and a piece of paper, Cochrane wrote a note to the Englishman, reporting our arrival. He explained to the gendarme that we wanted to bring the boat ashore, but that we could not start the engine. When this was understood, several men at once stripped and swam out to the rest of us. Cochrane came back smoking a cigarette, which he passed round when he got on board. The Cypriots, too, brought cigarettes, perched behind their ear like a clerk's pencil, and these we smoked with great appreciation. The scheme was for us to weigh the anchor, give the men towing ropes, and they would then pull the boat ashore. The men, though small, were well built. As they had started swimming almost before they could walk, it was no hardship for them to tow our heavy vessel. Laughing and shouting, they pulled us along until they thought a rest would be pleasant. Then they came on board again. They shouted now and then in sheer lightness of heart. They were very cheery fellows. We were not towed straight inshore, but to a small natural jetty a hundred and fifty yards west of us, along the beach. Here we stepped on British soil, eight thin and weary ragamuffins. We know our hearts gave thanks to God, though our minds could not grasp that we were really free. Our story is nearly at an end, though we have yet to bring our eight travellers to England. Should our already distressed readers hope against hope that the two authors will be torpedoed long before arriving there, we will put an end to any such fond anticipations by telling them truthfully that we were not. In order, however, to soothe in a small way their injured feelings, let us divulge the fact that we, with all but two of the party, spent several days ill in hospital before we reached home. One nearly died from malignant malaria doubtless caused by the bites of the mosquitoes on the Turkish coast. Having given the reader this sop, we will continue. Surrounded by a large but kindly crowd, we sat down on the rocks above the natural jetty on which we had landed, and waited for an answer to Cochrane's note. In the meanwhile a gift arrived from the monastery, a basket containing bread, cheese, olives, and pomegranates. No larks, tongs, nor the sunny halves of peaches have ever been so welcome, and we had a wonderful meal, finishing with clean, sweet water and cigarettes. About half an hour later, an officer, in what looked to us then extraordinarily smart uniform, came down to see why the crowd had collected, 
and on hearing our story conducted us to the village. The road led through orchards whose trees were heavy with pomegranates and figs, past vineyards and banana palms, tobacco plants and cotton. Everywhere we could see the signs of a fertile, prosperous land, and it struck us forcibly how different it all was from the barren tracts through which we had toiled down to the coast of Asia Minor. No more vivid testimony could be borne to the contrast between British and Turkish sovereignty. The officer with us did not belong to the police, but was on survey work in the island. We were taken, however, to the barracks of the Cyprus Mounted Police, and here, seated on chairs on the veranda, we were given coffee with sugar in it. Everything seemed wonderful. We could smoke as much as we wanted, and the barracks were scrupulously clean and tidy. One by one we went into the garden near a whitewashed well, and we were shaved by one of the CMP. After a good wash we brushed our hair for the first time for five weeks. All that time we had had to be satisfied with a comb. As soon as Lieutenant S. of the police arrived, we were taken upstairs to have breakfast, and right royally did we feast. The meal ended. We were given the Lapithos Echo, which contained Hague's and Fox communiques of the ninth of September. These two were wonderful, and we were greatly amazed by the change which had come over the main battlefront since we saw the last paper at Usgard before we left. Then the Germans were, so we were told, about to enter Paris. After breakfast, a hot bath and clean clothes were provided for each of us, our rags being collected in a corner with a view to their cremation. A Greek doctor anointed us with disinfectant, and bandaged anything we had in the way of sores or cuts. At about three p.m. two carriages arrived, and our triumphal progress continued. We first paid a final visit to the motorboat, collecting our few trophies in the way of rifles and flags. This done, we were driven to Kyrenia, a coast town, eight or nine miles to the east of us. The police officer and Greek doctor, stopping the carriages at every roadside inn to regale us with Turkish delight and ice water. At Kyrenia we were expected by the British residents, who accommodated us for the night and treated us with the truest British hospitality. Our sensations on finding ourselves once more between sheets in a spring bed are more easily imagined than described. Late next morning, after a bathe in the sea, and when many snapshots of the party had been taken, we were driven off in a motor lorry by Captain G. of the ASC to Farm Augusta, the port of Cyprus on the eastern coast. It was an eighty-mile drive, and what with stopping at Nicosia for lunch and at Larnaca for tea, we did not reach Farm Augusta and the mess of the Royal Scots, who had kindly offered us a home, till 9 p.m. All the recollections of our four days' stay in Cyprus are of the pleasantest description, as were those also of our voyage to Egypt in two French trawlers. As much cannot be said of the fortnight we spent in Port Said, where we passed the first night sleeping on the sand in a transit camp, and most of the rest in hospital, nor of our ten days in a troop train crossing Italy and France. During this time we learnt, what perhaps we needed to be taught, that we were, after all, the least important people in the world. But to tell of these adventures in detail would be to fill another book. Suffice it to say that we were sustained by a few comic episodes. On one occasion in Italy we spent five minutes talking Italian, based on slender memories of school-days Latin, to men in another troop train before we discovered that they were Frenchmen. On another in France we remember opening a conversation in French with our engine-driver, who proved to be an American. At length, on the 16th of October, 1918, five of our party reached England together, 
preceded by Cochrane, who had managed to arrange for a seat in a rapide across Europe, and followed by the old man and Nobby, who had had to remain in hospital in Egypt for another fortnight. Soon after arrival in England, each of us had the very great honour of being individually received by His Majesty the King. His kindly welcome and sympathetic interest in what we had gone through will ever remain a most happy recollection. Finally, we arranged a dinner for all our party, the date fixed being the 11th of November. This, as it turned out, was armistice night, and with that night of happy memories and a glimpse of the eight companions once again united, we will draw the tale of our adventures to a close. End of chapter 15